0: Has anyone else noticed that building projects, construction projects, they always take longer than you think to complete them, right? Uh, In in February, I started to finish our basement. I hoped unrealistically that before Declan was born in April, we would be able to have that uh, turned into a guest room and things like that. But then COVID hit and I got busier than I thought and things like that. And I am still working on that project. And probably will be, if I'm honest, until January or February or longer, right? Anybody else relate to that? Maybe it was a, a car that you purchased that you intended on fixing up and restoring, and uh, years later it's still sitting in your garage. Or maybe it's a quilt that you were hoping to create and just never got around to finishing it. And it's not just personal projects that, that seem longer uh, to complete than it, than it, than it takes. Uh, there are certain sections of roads, right? I'm thinking of some roads specifically in Minneapolis, St. Paul, that are perpetually under construction year after year after year after year, right? You'd think they would be done, but no, they're not. It just keeps going on. There's one building project, however, that isn't behind schedule at all. Christ's building project, the church, is right on schedule. And in our sermon text for this morning from Matthew chapter 16, Jesus promises to build his church and to build it so well that no enemy can prevail against it. If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 16. We'll be studying verses 13 through 20 this morning. Why don't you rise with me this morning as I read God's word. Matthew chapter 16, beginning at verse 13 all the way through verse 20. Again, reading in Jesus' name. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for This morning and for, again, the chance to gather together, Lord, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. Please sanctify us this morning in that truth. And we ask that you would be here in our midst today as we gather together in this building as the church. And we thank you for your promise that you are building the church and that uh, no enemy will ever prevail against it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. In this... In this text, there are at least three different truths that we need to be aware of, at least three, and the first truth that we need to be aware of is that misguided opinions of who Jesus is has not changed in 2,000 years everybody has an opinion, don't they? You only need to spend about 0.003 seconds on social media or watching any cable news network uh, to see opinions being tossed around like footballs, right? And like footballs, opinions often bounce around very chaotically, randomly. They, They vary from person to person, from group to group. And opinions are usually tracked through opinion polls, correct? Uh, maybe you've been unlucky enough to get a call from one of these survey takers who asks your opinion on everything, right? Whether or not the schools should resume in-person learning, whether or not masks should be mandated everywhere, what, should, what your thoughts on the current president are, what your thoughts on the current presidential candidates are, things like that. Everybody has opinions on those things. Calvin and Hobbes is one of my favorite comic strips of all times. It was wonderful when it came out, and it's one that has aged very well. And uh, one of the running gags throughout the strip was when six-year-old Calvin delivered to his dad the current opinion polls of household six-year-olds in the election of dad in the upcoming year. Calvin, by the way, was the only six-year-old in his household. Uh, put on this uh, comic here. I hope you can read that there. Calvin says, well, Dad, your polls are really high this week. And Dad says, oh, I'm glad to hear that. Calvin says, yep, those polled think that you are doing a fine job as Dad. In fact, with a little push today, your political stock could reach a record high. Dad says, nice try. Go help your mom with the dishes. <laughs> Calvin, oh, dad, suicide, oh, oh. <laughs> I love that. Opinions like like Calvin's approval or disapproval of his dad change like the wind. Up one minute, down the next, white one minute, black the next, right? However, there's one set of opinions that unfortunately hasn't changed in nearly 2,000 years, and again, that's the misguided opinions on who Jesus is. Is And in our sermon text this morning, Jesus asks his disciples for the opinions of the people. He wanted to know what the people thought of him. He did this not to stroke his own ego, but to start a conversation with his disciples. And the disciples were very open and honest in their reply. As they spent time with Jesus, learning from him, ministering with him, they also kept their ears open, their eyes open to what the crowds were saying and talking about. And as they did, they heard what others thought of their rabbi. And verse 14 tells us what they heard, right? Some say Jesus is John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And if these conclusions sound strange to you, I'd have to agree. (laughs) There's something very different, very odd about these conclusions, right? Each one of these individuals, John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, they had all one thing in common. And what was that? Yeah, they were all not murdered, but they were all dead. They might have all been murdered, but, uh, well, Elijah was taken up into heaven, so he wasn't murdered, right? But they were all dead or gone. And it must have been the thought that the Jews of Jesus' day believed that God was planning on sending some back, some of his prophets, to minister to his people. Uh, very strange conclusion to reach, but all that to say the people were divided as to Jesus' identity. And if people were divided as to Jesus' identity in his lifetime, then they're even more divided today, right? If you were to walk through downtown Fargo and stop 10 different people and ask them the question, who is Jesus, you'd probably get at least 10 different responses. Many people would say something along the lines that, uh, that Jesus was a good man and taught good morals about how to love. One another and have tolerance and acceptance for others. Others might say that Jesus was simply a legend or a myth who, like all legends, gets blown out of proportion by his followers. If you were to ask any Muslim their opinion of Jesus, they tell you that, yeah, they they believe that Jesus was born of a virgin, that he was sinless, that he performed many miracles, that he was a prophet of God. But they don't believe that he is God, nor do they believe that he was crucified, buried, or resurrected. Everyone, it would seem, everyone has an opinion about who Jesus was and who he claimed to be. But there's a second truth in our passage that we need to be aware of, and it's this. It's the truth of that Jesus, the, the truth of who Jesus is, has not changed in two thousand years either. Look at verses fifteen and sixteen again. But Jesus says to them, Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living god. Here Jesus gets specific, gets personal with his disciples. Who do you say that I am? It's as if he's saying forget everybody else's thoughts and opinions, what about you? And and by the way, in this verse, Jesus is using the Greek verb yall to address his disciples. He's asking each one of them their thoughts. He wants to know, and in fact he already knows, but he wants them to verbalize it. Have you all caught what I've been saying this whole time? And Peter, speaking for the group, Peter's reply is a response of faith in Jesus. He says, "'You are the Christ, the Son of the living God.'" This is Peter's confession. This is his response of faith. And it's a, it's a two-part declaration of faith, a confession of faith. faith. First, Peter acknowledges to Jesus that you are the Christ. And this declaration only makes sense in light of the promises of the Lord in the Old Testament to send a Redeemer, one who would ransom and set free his people from their enemies, right? By confessing, you are the Messiah, you are the Christ, Peter is acknowledging the truth that Jesus is the one who is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament prophecies. He is the one, he is the promised one who would deliver us from our enemies, Peter believed, firmly believed that Jesus was the one that the Jewish people had waited for since God uh, made the promise to Abraham of a deliverer. He says, you are the Christ. You are the one that we have been waiting for. There's a second confession of Peter's faith. He says, you are the son of the living God. And this is a weighty confession. There's a lot riding on this. Most Jewish boys, especially those from the tribe of Judah, grew up thinking that they could be the Messiah. Just as kids today pretend to be policemen or firefighters or mommies or cooks or doctors or, you know, whatever, right? Many Jewish boys believed that they could grow up to be the Messiah. But this second declaration of Peter is weightier. You are the son of the living God. Peter is confessing his belief that Jesus is who he claims to be. And who did Jesus claim to be? All throughout the gospel, Jesus is making some pretty bold claims. He claimed to have the authority to forgive sins, something that was reserved for God alone. He claimed to have always existed before Abraham was, I am. That's a direct reference to the divine name of Yahweh, He made himself equal with God. And Jesus also said that he would come back at the end to judge the world. Those are just a few of the claims that Jesus made. But as Peter confesses, you are the son of the living God, Peter is acknowledging that he believed all of Jesus that claimed to be, all that he claimed to be. And Peter's confession wasn't a blind confession just based on mere words. For Peter, this was real. His confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, was based on evidence. He had heard Jesus teach, right? Peter had seen Jesus love the down and the out. Peter had personally witnessed miracles, probably numbering in the hundreds, including the healing of his own mother-in-law. Peter had seen Jesus cast out demons. He had heard the mute speak, seen the sight of the blind restored, watched as the deaf hear, and and had their hearing restored. Peter had experienced Jesus feeding thousands with meager provisions of bread and fish. He saw Jesus walk on the water and had been personally called out by Jesus to walk on the water as well. Yes, Peter had witnessed all of this and believed that Jesus is the Messiah. And Peter would see more, too, as, as we read this interaction this morning, events like the transfiguration of Jesus and his resurrection from the dead had not yet taken place. Peter believed that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God, his Messiah. And then in the last part of this sermon text, we have a third promise We have Jesus' promise to build his church. And this is a promise that can never be altered or defeated. Look at verses 17, 18, and 19 again with me. Let me read these here. Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon bar Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Oftentimes in Scripture, Simon Peter's mouth gets him in trouble, doesn't it? Right? And in fact, if you, if you look at the, the next section of Scripture following this passage, Peter says something brash, and Jesus calls him Satan and tells him to stop trying to foil God's plans. But here in our text this morning, Simon Peter's mouth earned him some praise. Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon. Jesus says, you finally got it. You finally understand what I have been teaching you. Congratulations. And then Jesus gets very specific and he makes some very specific promises to Peter and to us today as well. And there are at least four of them in that section of scripture there. First, Jesus promises to build on this rock. Remember we're talking about construction and building projects. Jesus promises to build on this rock and he promises on this rock to build his church. Now there are some fun things going on here in the Greek text that we don't necessarily pick up in English. Uh, The New Testament was written in Koine Greek, common Greek. And if we were to read it in Greek, you would read, and I think it's on the screen there, yeah, uh, you are Petros, you are Peter, and on this Petra, on this rock, I will build my church. You see how similar the names Peter and the word for rock are? Peter's name Petros means rock. There is a subtle difference, however, between Petros and Petra. Uh, Petros means rocks, loose or individual rocks or stones. Uh, These right here, these little rocks, I don't know if you can see them here, right? These are petros, loose individual rocks, right? The things that you put around your house or around the church. Those are the loose rocks. That's petros. Yeah, petros. Um, On the other hand, petra usually refers to a rock that is... Connected, if you will, to the other rocks around it—right, a, a rocky shelf, a rocky ridge, a, a rocky mountain peak, things like that. So Jesus is saying, "You are a loose rock, uh, Petros, and on this solid rock I will build my church." And among Christians, there's a, there's a great divide to what or to whom this solid rock is, and how we are to understand what Jesus meant. The Roman Catholic Church looks at these verses as the establishment of the papacy. They believe that here Jesus is coronating Peter as the first pope, the head of the church. They believe that Jesus here conferred on Peter the, the highest place of honor and jurisdiction of, in, in the government of his whole church. And they also believe that the same spiritual authority that Peter has has been passed down from pope to pope to pope to pope, all the way on down the line to Francis today. And uh, they believe that Jesus has been building his church on the rock of the Pope. And according to the Roman Catholic Church, these verses here, Jesus, again, is granting the Pope both spiritual and temporal authority, meaning that the church and the state can't do anything unless the Pope says they can. However, I I don't believe that Jesus is establishing the papacy in these verses. He says nothing about establishing a hierarchy or a bureaucracy within the church, nothing about uh, conveying absolute authority, Jesus, in fact, had to constantly remind his disciples against that, right? He constantly had to remind them not to seek greatness or the places of authority. In Matthew chapter 20, verses 25 and, and following, Jesus said this. He said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over others, and, they exer- and their great ones exercise authority over them. But he said, It shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to serve, or not, yeah, not to serve, but to be, I'm sorry, let me rewind. (laughs) Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Why would he then, you know, bestow upon Peter and, and to not all of this authority, but yet tell his disciples not to exercise authority. I don't think Jesus is promising to build his church on the rock of Peter himself specifically, and the the papacy. Another interpretation of Jesus' promise here to build on this rock points back to the confession that Peter made in verse 16 as being the rock on which Jesus will build his church. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Since Peter would soon disappoint Jesus, like when Jesus had to say, you know, get behind me, Satan, or when Peter even denied know- knowing Jesus. Since Peter would soon disappoint, many theologians point back to the reality of that confession of faith as, and, and to who Jesus is as being the rock on which the church is built. And I think a correct interpretation, I believe, is somewhere in the middle of those two positions. And I'm not going to advocate that we should all become Roman Catholics. But the Apostle Paul does seem to argue that the church, the household old of God, is being built on the apostles and on the prophets as they shared the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And as Paul writes to Gentile Christians in Ephesus, Paul has this to say, Ephesians chapter 2. I think I have these words here on the screen for you as well. Uh, So then you Gentiles are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Every building has a foundation, doesn't it? Whether it's this church building or your own house or a skyscraper, whatever, every building has a foundation, something that anchors it to the the rest of the earth the good foundations go deep 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 into the earth's bedrock and are firmly anchored there a poor foundation can send a building crumbling down uh, my, my brother-in-law recently discovered that uh, their bonus room in their house, kind of a back room there, added after the house was built, was built on a very poor foundation. And that foundation is starting to crumble and erode, and the, the back room is starting to sag. And he's trying to convince me, along with some of his other friends, to crawl under there with him and repair that foundation. <laughs> I don't know if I want to, right? Foundations are vital, And Paul says that the foundation of the church is first and foremost Jesus Christ as the cornerstone of that foundation. In the the metaphor of a building, Jesus Christ is the most important piece, guiding and directing the setting of angles for the rest of the building. And added to that cornerstone are the apostles and the prophets. As the, as the apostles taught and preached the gospel as they, under the authority and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, penned scripture, the church grew and is still being built up today. So what is this rock that Jesus promises to build on? I believe that the rock that Jesus promised to build on is finally and ultimately his word. As the apostles taught the word of God, as they taught the good news, as the prophets prophesied and preached the gospel, the Lord was causing his church to grow. There's a second promise of Jesus that's found in verse 18. Again, Jesus says, on this rock I will build my church. And the emphasis here is that Jesus promised to build his church my church, Jesus says. That little word my is a huge word here. It's personal, isn't it? It's possessive. Jesus is the owner. He is the designer. He is the architect, the engineer, the builder. This is his church. And because it's his church, not our church, he gets to run the show, right? We don't get to tell him how to do things. We don't get to update his business model. Uh, you know, Jesus, this is a this is 21st century. Uh, the way you did things 2,000 years ago was great, but you know, we need to get with the times, be more inclusive in our language, be up to date with our beliefs and go along with the current trends, things like that. And I'm, I'm sorry, <laughs> but that's not going to work. We do not get to tell Jesus how to run things. The church is his because he paid for it with his blood. He bought it with his death on the cross. And again, it is his church. We acknowledge that the church is not a building, right? These four walls, or six or eight, or however how many ever are in this sanctuary, right? <laughs> These walls do not constitute the church. This is simply the building where the church meets, Right? It's important to get together. Uh, No doubt about that, right? If COVID has taught me anything, I think it taught me the importance of, of meeting together. We need to be together. We need the fellowship. We need the camaraderie. But at the same time, the church is not a building. The church is a body. The church is a body that's made up of you all. Right? Individual members using your own gifts, your talents, your abilities to love God and to love and to serve your neighbor. You are his church. You are his body. And nearly every Sunday morning here at Maranatha, we confess our faith using the words of the Apostles' Creed, right? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and and so on and, and so forth. And maybe you are bored of the routine of it, right? Saying it week in, week out. Maybe the words of the Apostles' Creed have become so rote and habit that you just say them without thinking about what you are saying. But for me, reciting the Apostles' Creed is one of my favorite parts of Sunday morning. And uh, because I'm preaching this morning, I am going to tell you why it is my favorite part of Sunday morning. It's my favorite part because the Apostles' Creed reminds me that the church is bigger than just our fellowship here. When we recite the Apostles' Creed, we join our confession with that of other saints across time and space, whether we're located here in in Glinden or in Glasgow, whether we're in Minnesota or Mongolia, right? Reciting the Creed connects us with other believers across the globe. It doesn't join us in some mystical, ethereal mind meld, but it joins us in a common confession of our faith. And the creed is a confession that's, that's nearly as old as the church itself. The Apostles' Creed wasn't written by the apostles, but it's called the Apostles' Creed because it has its origins in their teachings. As early as the 200s A.D., parts of the creed were being used by Christians uh, as a baptismal creed and confession. And the Apostles' Creed has existed in its current form since the 700s A.D. So think about that. 1300 years so when you recite the Apostles Creed you're confessing your faith using the same words that believers have used for 1300 years and that's huge because it means that we are not alone in our faith my first call out of seminary was to plant a church in Arizona and church planting can be some tough lonely work and I remember one Sunday morning in particular that was very lonely Uh, We met in a school gym each week, which means that we had to set up and tear down our sanctuary every week. And while it was a lot of work, it brought a lot of camaraderie among us. And uh, one Sunday morning during the summer, it was particularly rough because most of our families were gone. There were only five of us in church that Sunday myself and Liz and our three parish builders or our three church interns uh, who were uh, part of the program as well. I think Serena was there. I think William was around at that time too, but I can't remember. Um, and we began to wonder, right, should we even bother setting up and having our church service for only five of us? It would have been easy to pack it in, to call it a day, but after praying together about it, we, we decided to set up and to have our worship service And uh, so we did a full setup, had the complete service and and tore down just the five of us. And interestingly enough, our call to worship that morning was taken from Matthew chapter 18, verse 20. Does anybody know what that one says? Matthew 18, verse 20? Jesus says, yeah, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in their midst, right? (laughs) That morning, that verse became a reality for us. And as the five of us gathered for worship, we were not alone. First and foremost, because Jesus was in our midst. And that morning, as we confessed our faith using the words of the Apostles' Creed, we were reminded that as small as we were, we were a part of the larger church, the universal church gathered across time and space. We were then and we are today his church. And that's a beautiful promise, and I love that promise. So that's why I love confessing the Apostles' Creed every Sunday, and I hope you catch a little bit of that as well. Jesus also promised to build his church so that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And this is another beautiful promise, isn't it? We know, and Jesus knew too, that his church would be attacked and would be persecuted. If the world hates you, he said, it's going to... Yeah, know that it hated me before it hated you. If they persecuted you, they're also going to persecute you, he said in John chapter 15. And persecution comes in varying degrees of severity, doesn't it, right? Anything from being mocked and teased for your faith to violent attacks. In, In the days of the early church, Emperor Nero arrested believers and would drench them in oil and use them as human tiki torches in his garden parties. Right? Nice guy, huh? Um, And and unfortunately, the the persecution of Christians did not stop there. It has continued on into 2020. One example of this is the persecution of Christians in Nigeria. Uh, With everything that's going on in in 2020, a lot has happened. And these stories haven't gotten a lot of traction. But our brothers and sisters have reported uh, that from January to June of this year, they have experienced over 50 attacks from Boko Haram militants in which over 300 churches have been burned. And get this, 8,370 Christians have been killed. Over 8,000 people dead, murdered. And this, by the way, is just in one denomination in Nigeria. 8,000 people murdered, hundreds of thousands displaced, an untold number of young boys and girls captured and kidnapped, and not one word of it in the media, right? America nearly comes unhinged with the death of a black man in police custody. But we don't even blink an eye at 8,300 Christians slaughtered in Nigeria, right? And this is, by the way, one reason that we pray each week for a different persecuted nation. Persecution is real. Our brothers and sisters in Christ are dealing with some really hard times. So how about some good news? (laughs) How about some good news? Satan and his plans for persecution will come to naught. The gates of hell shall not prevail against the church, Jesus says. No matter what our adversary tries to throw at the church, she cannot be defeated. She cannot be defeated because Christ has already won the victory over Satan. The enemy of our souls is a defeated foe. He was defeated at the cross of Calvary where Jesus shed his blood for you, His bride. As Christ bore your sins, the handwriting was on the wall for Satan. And as Christ rose from the dead, victorious, Satan was defeated. And we wait, we eagerly await for his destruction uh, when Christ comes and returns and sets up his kingdom, his eternal kingdom in the new heavens and the new earth. And we eagerly await that. Amen. Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. But there's one final promise of Jesus that we need to talk about this morning. In verse 19, Jesus promises to give believers the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Look at verse 19 again. It says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And admittedly, this is another tough verse to wrestle with. What are these keys? Why is Jesus giving them to Peter? What's all this talk of binding and loosing. What is that all about? And often when we come to a tough passage of scripture like this one, we need to let scripture interpret scripture. A good principle of biblical exegesis is to allow some of the passages that are a bit clearer to shed and easier to understand, to shed light on some of these tougher passages of scripture. And in Matthew chapter 18, just a few chapters from where we are now, Jesus lays down some very, very familiar principles for dealing with somebody who is living in unrepentant sin. Right? First, you, first you approach them directly, and then if they're still unrepentant, you bring one or two others along with you as you talk about this and show it to them. Right? But if they're still unrepentant, you bring the matter before the church. Right? And if they're still unrepentant after that, Jesus says, exclude them from the assembly. Uh, and then he says this. He says, Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. It kind of sounds familiar, doesn't it? Right? Uh, in, in talking about unrepentant sin, Jesus spoke the same words uh, that he had when he talked about the keys of the kingdom of heaven. So maybe these keys have something to do with sins and maybe the forgiveness of sins and things like that. One more passage that helps shed light on the identity of the keys is in John chapter 20, where we read after, again, Jesus was resurrected from the dead, when Jesus breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. He said, if you forgive, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, this it is withheld. And I believe that these verses and the keys to the kingdom of heaven are in reference to the practice of confession of sin and absolution. And I'm not talking about confession in the Roman Catholic sense of the word. And if you're new here, I don't pick on Catholics this often. It just happened (laughs) this morning, right? Um, but there's also been a very negative connection with, co- with confession and, and the Roman Catholic Church. In the Roman tradition, right, you would have to go to confession once a week and enumerate all of your sins to the priest. And if you couldn't think of any or if you didn't want to confess the really bad ones, you, you just made up other ones, right? And then the priest would give you 50 Hail Marys to pray and give you penance to do so that you could earn your forgiveness, right? But if confession and absolution is done well, I believe it can be one of the most beneficial habits in the life of a Christian. So how is it done well? After Bible school, I lived in Florida for a little while working with a small church there. And and while there, I had made some Christian friends. And the three of us would get together at least once a week to study God's word and have prayer. And one of the things that we were able to do was to be open and honest with one another and share the struggles and trials that were going on in our lives. We could, we could share everything with one another. Nothing was off limits. Uh, but then here's the good part. After somebody would confess their sins, their struggle with sins, we would remind them of the forgiveness in Jesus. We'd read passages like 1 John 1, 9 that says, If you confess your sins, God is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That's confession and absolution done well, I believe. There is, there is great freedom in finding a, a faithful, trustworthy, mature brother or sister in Christ with whom you can be open and honest enough to share your sins and your shortcomings. And as you confess your sins, they can remind you of the forgiveness that is in Christ, that Christ has won for you and that has been applied to you. And these are such wonderful relationships to have, and I pray that each one of you will be able to cultivate to develop those uh, for yourself as well. Because it is a phenomenal thing to have somebody say to you, because of what Jesus has done, your sins have been forgiven and to remind you of what Christ has done on the cross. Amen. Some projects take time, don't they, right? Like developing those relationships that you feel comfortable enough to share your sins and your struggles. Some projects take time, but Jesus building his church, he is right on track. Sometimes it might seem slow, and our local congregation might not seem as grand or as showy as some of the bigger gatherings around, right? But he is doing his work through his word right here. Amen. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, we thank you for the promises of your word in this passage of scripture. We thank you that we are not alone. That, we, uh, that you are with us as we gather together in your name, that we have a great cloud of witnesses that are surrounding us, that our brothers and sisters across the world are joining with us together. Lord, and again, we do pray for those brothers and sisters, especially in Nigeria this morning and places like that, who are undergoing violent persecution for their faith. We ask that you would help them to remain strong and continue to be with them even in the midst of those things, Father God. And we know uh, your love conquers all things. We pray that even those militants would come to know you as Lord and Savior. But we thank you for meeting us here today through your word. We thank you for your church, the body that is gathered here, and each individual member of it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.